Last week we talked a little bit at the outset about the danger of kind of becoming somewhat dulled by what is familiar, even when it's something as profound as the Christmas story. But I don't know about you, I think the Lord really taught us last week. And as many of you commented to me how um, God just kind of gave you insight in a, in a fresh way and you kind of saw this in a, in a new light. I felt the same way. I think the Lord, uh, the Holy Spirit really revealed some, some new thoughts to us about the reality of that night in Bethlehem. And it's important to have that fresh perspective and to continually be amazed not only that God would intervene in human history, but that he'd do it in such a humble and sacrificial way. And that's really the overriding concept that I'd like to to have in our thinking this morning as we study in Luke chapter 2. So let's take our Bibles and turn there, because there are are spiritual principles uh, in this text that we know very, very well. And I know I'm talking to mostly seasoned crowd. Um, This is the core really, of our theology and our faith. And yet, every time we study this text, uh, we should be absolutely astounded at the work of God. Now, as we go through uh, this passage this morning, and we're going to go back to Isaiah in a couple minutes, uh, I would, again, like you to, to transport yourself in your mind back to that time and back to that night and to try to really understand this from the viewpoint of both Joseph and Mary, but especially this morning from Mary's standpoint. What she's told by the angel and what she knows as she holds that baby and as she remembers it throughout the course of her life, all those facts, all that reality would have been absolutely gut-wrenching from a mother's standpoint. Now you say, well, Paul, that seems kind of weird because this is a happy moment. She just had her baby. Yes, it is, but she knows why that baby's there. And what is wonderful and life-changing for us because of the birth of Jesus Christ constantly tore at the fabric of her heart. And she was never able to escape that. She was never able to get away from the reality of why that child was there. And I want you to feel that this morning. Especially for us, those of us that are parents. I want to really have us experience the awe of this, but also the agony of this. Because it's the only way that we can really understand the magnitude of what Jesus Christ has done for us in saving us. So, let's look at the text. We read the whole thing last week. Let's just take seven verses this morning. Start in verse 8. This is familiar again, so... Get your mind now focused. Don't let it slip onto what you still have to buy at Walmart. Let's, let's really focus on the text here. Luke chapter 2, verse 8. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. An angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said, Don't be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Now, our key verses this morning are verses 11 and 12. 
And in verses 11 and 12, there are four primary statements that we need to concentrate on, two in each verse. Verse 11 focuses on Jesus' eternal identity. And verse 12 focuses on the verification of that identity. But the second verse isn't just a validation. It is also a stunning and sobering picture in advance of what Jesus will have to endure to purchase our freedom from sin and death. Now, all four of these uh, prophecies were made hundreds of years before that night in Bethlehem by Old Testament prophets who were given insight from the Lord about what was going to happen at a time when Israel was proving just how completely man needs salvation. The Old Testament is a verification, it's a proof, it's a greater understanding, uh, and, and it's a diffusing of the argument uh, that man makes that we can just do what we want, that will be good enough, that God's loving, that a loving God would never punish anybody, that, that everybody's accepted, that it doesn't matter which road you follow, doesn't matter what you believe, everybody's going to heaven, come on, God wouldn't do that, there's no hell, be serious. That prophecy that is given about God comes at a time when Israel is proving just how ridiculous that theory is that man can save himself. So God says, I'm going to intervene because you guys can't do it. I told you that from the outset. You should have known it with Adam and Eve. You should have known it with Noah. You should have known it with the Tower of Babel. You should have known it with the rebellion. You should have known it with your kings. You should have known it with the captivity. You should have known it with the carnality. You should have known it with Nineveh. You should have seen it all along, but apparently you haven't. Apparently you don't get it because that's how clueless man is. So while you're living in your delusion that you can save yourself, I'm going to show you that you can't, and I'm going to provide an answer for you. Now, God doesn't have to do that, but He does. And by His love and His grace, He says through the prophets, I'm going to send someone that is going to save you. There are 425 prophecies in the Old Testament about the coming of Messiah, and Jesus fulfills every single one of them. Now, let's take our Bibles, keep your place here in Luke, because we're coming back. Turn back to the book of Isaiah. Because I think it will be important for us to do just a very quick couple-minute survey, and you can look at these passages later, but a couple-minute survey about some of the prominent prophecies that were made just in the book of Isaiah. And doing this reinforces our faith, and it gives us substantiation when we're defending our belief in Jesus Christ. Because there are going to be people that say, well, come on, the guy lived 2,000 years ago, he's just a good teacher, we don't know a lot about him, but you're crazy to believe in him. We can go back to Isaiah and say, look, 700 years before Christ was born, these prophecies were made. Now let's start in chapter 7 of Isaiah and verse 14. And we're going to read some verses here, so I want you to just kind of keep moving along with me. Isaiah 7:14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son. She will call his name Emmanuel. Look over to chapter 9 and verse 6. 
For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Turn over to chapter 11, verses 1 to 2. Then a shoot will spring from the uh, stern of, stem excuse me, of Jesse, that was David's father, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and of fear. Then turn over to chapter 16, verse 5. throne will be even be established in loving kindness and a judge will sit on it in faithfulness in the tent of David moreover he will seek justice and be prompt in righteousness now those four passages and we're going to look at two more in a minute those four passages were written 700 years before Jesus was born and they established three primary truths about the one that was going to come First of all, he was going to be a descendant of David and he was going to have an eternal throne because God had covenanted it to David. Your throne is going to be forever and your flesh, your generation will be established on that throne as the eternal king. Now, Matthew 1, the reason we have that long genealogy list at the start of Matthew 1 is because Matthew is establishing the genealogical link between David and Jesus. So the prophecies that are made in Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9 and Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 16 are, are all proven by Jesus' birth in Matthew 1. The second thought was that he would be born of a virgin and he would be named Emmanuel. That's validated in Matthew 1 and Luke chapter 2. The third thought is that he would have the Spirit of the Lord on him and that he would live perfectly and again, this is proven in Luke 1, Luke 2, and all throughout the Gospels. So 700 years, seven centuries before Jesus is born, the prophet says, this is what's going to happen. The Lord gave me this word, and these would be the signs, these would be the validations that this is the Messiah. Jesus fulfilled every one. Now turn over to chapter 35. Isaiah chapter 35. And let's look at verses 5 and 6. Isaiah is talking about the future of Israel. He says, Then the eyes of the blind will be open, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy, for waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams and the Arabah. Now this prophecy is validated all throughout Jesus' ministry in numerous examples of him healing people, and casting out demons, and raising people from the dead, and doing miracles. And isn't it interesting that even non-believers will talk about Jesus preaching about love, and forgiveness, and social justice, but they'll ignore the eyewitness reports of Jesus doing miracles intertwined with his teaching, 
where he would teach and then somebody would come up and say, my daughter died and he would heal the person. Or, or somebody would come up screaming because they were filled with demons and he would cast them out and then he'd just continue to teach. Well, the world will say, well, Jesus was a good prophet and he was a teacher and he spoke about love and tolerance and social justice and, and we need to do this and this. But, but they totally ignore the miracles. Even those that were denying him and rejected him and put him to death, that, that stood there before him, they had absolutely no answer for the proof of his deity and his power over disease and death. And what Isaiah said about this one that would come was proven and it showed that he was the Savior from heaven. Now turn over to chapter 53 and let's look at one more. We know this one well. We can probably quote this one by heart. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 3 to 7. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hid their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore. We just celebrated that at the communion table. And our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. The chastising of, for our, excuse me, the chastening for our well, well-being fell upon him and by his scourging were healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Every one turned to his own way. But the Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and afflicted. He did not open his mouth though like a lamb that was led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. He did not open his mouth. Now there's absolutely no question who that passage is talking about. Jesus was tempted in every way like we are. In verse 3 we see that predicted and yet without sin. Verse 4 predicts that he would carry our sins and our condemnation upon himself, which he did when he went to the cross. Verse 5 says he'll be pierced and scourged as part of his suffering. We know the physical uh, pain and, and trauma that he endured. And it says in verse 7 that he won't open his mouth. He'll be like a sheep that's going to slaughter, that doesn't say a word. As Jesus stands before Pilate and Pilate says, come on, tell me who you are. Prove yourself. It says Jesus didn't say a word. So again, 700 years before Jesus is born, this is predicted. And it's all fulfilled in him. There's not one person who's ever lived who qualifies as the fulfillment of any of these. And yet, these are just four of the 425 that is predicted about the one who would come, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Savior, and Jesus fulfilled every one. Now, you say, okay, that's wonderful. Why is it important to get all that background? And what does it have to do with Mary? And what does it have to do with me? Well, go back over to Luke 2, and let's examine why this is important. Mary was clearly a student of Scripture. In fact, if you look at what we call the Magnificat in Luke chapter 1, every phrase that she utters in those ten verses is filled with Old Testament quotes. She quotes at least five Old Testament books, Exodus, 1 Samuel, Psalm, Isaiah, and Micah. So even as a young woman, we uh, have the, the belief that she's probably in her late teens at this point. Even as a young woman, she knows Scripture very thoroughly. 
Parents, remember, as our kids grow up, this is part of the reason we do the Awana ministry, that we need to fill them with Scripture. We need to, to encourage them to study and grow and memorize and know Scripture. Mary was in her late teens. Our late teenagers, our early teenagers, should know Scripture. They should know songs. They should be able to quote that. And you know what? They're going to learn from our example. Mary knew Scripture. Quote after quote, as she praises God, she quotes the Old Testament. So as she's quoting the Old Testament, as she's praising God, who's just told her, you're going to have a child. It's from the Lord. This child's going to be holy, and He's going to save people from their sins. As she understands that, she knows that she is the virgin that Isaiah 7 talked about. That's verified when Joseph is visited by the angel, and the angel says to him, the actual verse that we just read, there's going to be a virgin that's going to conceive and give birth a son, and his name will be Emmanuel. The angel says that to Joseph in his dream. And Joseph goes back to Mary and says, yep, I got the verification too. And then she knows that this child is Emmanuel. He's God with us. Which is wonderful. She has this baby. It's newborn. It's wonderful. She's praising God. But she also knows what has been prophesied about him. And she knows while Isaiah 7 is true of her and this baby, that Isaiah 53 will also be true about this baby. Try to imagine this morning the mix of joy and agony that she felt. As the shepherds come in loudly and they're praising God that the Savior has come, Mary also knows the Old Testament sacrificial system. And she knows that blood is required for the remissions of sins. And she knows that the prophets had said that the Savior, this child, her child, would be the one that would be like the sheep that was led to slaughter. Imagine what she's feeling at that point. As a parent, what that felt like for her, not only in the emotion of the moment, not only personally, but in the knowledge of the overwhelming scope of Christ's purpose for being here. And we sang uh, earlier, What Child Is This? And in that, uh, that Christmas carol, there's a very peaceful picture uh, of the manger scene. Joseph, uh, excuse me, uh, Jesus is sleeping on Mary's lap and the angels are singing sweet anthems, and the shepherds are guarding him, and the wise men are quietly kneeling before him. These are all in the lines of the song. And Mary's singing a little lullaby. But the second chorus, I don't know if you saw it as we were singing, the second chorus offers a very stark contrast to the lullaby, and the quiet, and the wonderful, and the sweet anthems. The second chorus says, nails, spears shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me and you. You see, that abrupt picture of the baby being pierced by nails and by a spear reminds us that there was going to be a price for salvation and that that was clear from the very outset. 
That song was written at the end of the Civil War about that time by, a, by an Englishman named William Chatterton Dix. It was part of a larger song that he wrote called The Manger Throne. I was interesting as I researched this this week. In 1865, conservative Christians and, and Puritans didn't openly celebrate the birth of Christ. They didn't allow any gift giving. They didn't allow any decorating. They didn't even really acknowledge the day because they feared that if it was set aside as a special day, that Christmas would become a day of pagan rituals more than a serious time of worship. How many know that those guys had a little bit of insight? They, they were able to, to understand and have foresight about what was going to happen. So in that spiritual climate in 1865, it was pretty unusual that William Dix uh, wrote a number of Christmas songs because most hymn writers of the day stayed away from the theme of Christmas. And yet William Dix had depth in his theology because he understood the dichotomy that's represented in Christ's birth that it's joyful and wonderful and the shepherds were praising and Mary was singing a lullaby and the child was sleeping and everything's great. But there's also no escaping the future implications of what Jesus came to do. Now that brings us back to this text because as we said at the start, the angel's words describe Christ's purpose for being there. And I want you to look back at verse 11 because let's just briefly take each of these four things that they're saying about him. First, they're saying that he's going to be the Savior. Interesting word. It, it, it's the word soter, and it comes from the Greek root word sozo. Now, why do you care sozo? Everybody say sozo so you wake up. Sozo, okay? Sozo is a wonderful word in the Greek. It's a very descriptive word for Savior and Deliverer, and it has four different meanings that all work together. Okay? Sozo means to rescue from destruction and death. That's meaning one. To rescue from destruction and death. Meaning two is to deliver from evil and the penalties of judgment. So there's a rescuing, there's a delivering. Third, it means to heal and restore. So there's a restor restorative aspect to the deliverance and the saving. And then the fourth meaning is to make whole. So sozo is rescuing from destruction and death, delivering from evil and judgment, healing and restoring, and making whole. Great word, right? There are four actions that Jesus ensures will be done for us because of his sacrifice, and as we trust him as our Savior, he sozos us. He rescues us from destruction and death. Romans 8 says, all of us have been in slavery, in corruption, and in bondage to sin and death. But Romans 6, 6 says, our old self was crucified in order that our body of sin might be done away with and that we would no longer be slaves to sin, but alive with him. That's the rescuing from destruction and death. Then it says that he delivers us from evil and judgment. Romans 5 says, because Christ died for us, we are saved from the wrath of God and we're reconciled with Him going from His enemies to His children. Somebody say Amen. Then the third aspect of Sozo is we're healed and restored. Romans 6 says, 
that were raised, he raised us from the dead spiritually, and now we walk in newness of life and are adopted as his own. That's third. And then fourth, it says that we're completed in his work and we're made whole. We're freed from sin. We're cleansed and purified. We're filled with righteousness. We're sealed with his spirit. And praise God, nothing can ever separate us from his love. So this little baby, this child in Mary's arms is going to be the sozo. He's going to be the savior. He's going to rescue and deliver and heal and make whole. He is the savior. Second, he's the Christ. He's the Lord. And both have a very strong meaning. To be the Christ means to be the anointed one, the Messiah, the one sent from heaven to save. To be Lord means to be the owner and possessor of all things. Jesus Christ is not subordinate to anyone. He doesn't answer to anyone in the world. He doesn't answer to anyone in the heavens. He is God. He is God. He is God. How we understand the Trinity, I have no clue. I've been to seminary. I've done this for a quarter century. I can't explain it to you. But never miss the fact that Jesus Christ is God. He is the Christ, the anointed one, sent from heaven. He's the Lord, the creator, the owner, the possessor, the authority over everything. Now the first word, especially the Christ, the anointed one, the sent one from heaven, distinguishes him from all the other great people that have lived, who have been warriors and kings and heroes and have made their mark in history. Because he's not just another one in that list. He is the sovereign God. He is the Lord of all. He is so far above his creation that it would be ridiculous to compare him to anybody else. And it's that fact that he's not only the Savior, because many people claim to save people, many people claim to help people and to restore them emotionally and spiritually some way. So, so people might say, well, he's just like everybody else. Yes, but he's also the Christ. He's also the anointed one from heaven. The creator and the owner of all things, which means that everybody else falls short. Now, I know that's kind of theological 101 on, on December 11th, but, but this is an important distinction for us when we talk to someone who, who is uh, only wanting to say, well, Jesus forgives. And Jesus tolerates our actions and we can, we can live however we want. God has to unconditionally accept me. Uh, you know, okay, I've done some bad things and I'll have to kind of overlook that. But, but come on, there, there's, there's no judgment. God, God just loves you. Listen, we have to establish, yes, He is the Savior and that's so wonderful. But He's also the Christ. He's also the Lord. And that means that we're accountable to Him. And He determines whether we are still under sin's possession or whether we have given our lives and yielded our lives to Him. So yes, He's the Savior. He offers Himself for sins and, and He's able to redeem us by His blood. But He's also God. He is the righteous judge who has every right to say, my holiness has to be satisfied. And because you can't do it, 
I'm willing to do it. That's why I sent Christ. But you cannot be complete. You cannot be bought without the price of sin being paid. This is why salvation is not just, well, I was at camp when I was eight and I prayed and I'm good and I'm covered. Listen, salvation demands lordship. Hear that this morning. We don't just pray and we're saved and we go to church and we give and we serve and then we get to heaven and God says, well, what did you do with your life? Did you serve me? Well, I made a decision. Uh-uh. If you are saved, then you're under His Lordship. Then He has bought you. He owns you. He redeemed you by His blood. He is the ruler of your life. May we always disbelieve the lie that the enemy tells us that we can be saved and live like we want. No, He owns us. We've been purchased. That means life is different. We are under His Lordship. He tells us what to do, and we do it. Now, it's not that punitive because He's a God of grace and mercy, right? Because He's loving and forgiving and patient and all the other wonderful words that we love. But He is also our Lord. And before we balk at that and say, well, come on, Rhodes, that's too big a price. Uh, That's too much to ask. Then we get to verse 12. Third characteristic. He was wrapped in cloths. Now, that wasn't just a resourceful solution that Mary came up with because she was unprepared. Because it was expedient to her to grab a blanket and tear it up to keep him warm. What, what parent would choose to do that with a newborn? It's been a while since I've diapered a baby, but it's hard enough to use the diapers with the Velcro strips and to wrap it around the baby, right? So imagine trying to grab a cold baby who's squirming and newborn and taking strips of fabric and wrapping it around him. When I was diapering our babies, slap that baby on, hope that the Velcro stuck, grab a blanket, wrap them up so they can't get loose. I'd still like to do that some days. So imagine the the painstaking process of taking this. I mean, this is not the preferable method. Just give me pampers and a blanket and I'm done. But she takes strips of cloth around that squirming little cold baby and she wraps him. Again and again and again. That seems like such a strange, unnecessary detail. But it not only identified him to the shepherds. Hey, you find a baby, he's wrapped in cloths. But it also was a symbolic metaphor for one of the two major purposes for his life. And again, that couldn't have been lost on Mary. She knew about despised and rejected. She knew about pierced through with nails and spear. And it was a horrible, tragic awareness and reality for a mother. I can't prove this is true, but I wonder if as she's wrapping him, if God gave her a brief flash of insight into his future. And how one day she would watch as his lifeless body was carried away 
and wrapped with strips of cloth that made up his grave clothes, not knowing that she would come that morning to visit his grave and it would be empty and there would be another angel that would say, he's risen as he said. As she lays him then forth in the manger, I don't know if she fully understood at this point the necessity of the cross and the victory of the tomb, but she had just been told he will be a suffering saver. And again, I wonder if God was foreshadowing in her mind the conclusion of Jesus' life. And we said it last week, let me say it again if you weren't here. If that manger was wood, that would symbolize the cross that he went to to carry away our sins and how he would be willingly and joyfully ready to endure that cross and that shame to deliver us. If the, if the manger was made out of stone, which I believe, that would symbolize the tomb that he was laid in. Isaiah says in another prophecy, he will fill a rich man's grave. He will be buried in a rich man's place. That's what Joseph of Arimathea was. He was a rich man. And there's evidence that the grave was carved out extra out of the rock because apparently Jesus was taller than Joseph. We can't prove it, but it's possible. But whether it was a a manger of wood that symbolized the cross or a manger of stone that symbolized the tomb, it didn't matter. Jesus was going to both places. And both were required to accomplish the reason that He came to save us from our sins. And here's the most important truth of all. Just as quickly as He was changed out of those cloths, and just as quickly as He was brought out of the manger, so He would grow in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man, so also would He someday shed the grave clothes, the strips that were around Him, and he would lay them down in that tomb, and he would walk out of that tomb, risen as Savior and Lord. Because he didn't just come to be killed, the greater purpose was that he came to rise again. That he came to get victory over sin and death and hell, and to offer us forgiveness and salvation and redemption and restoration and deliverance and eternal adoption as his own children. Jesus left heaven to take on the form of a baby knowing what the end result would be. That He would be victorious and that sin would be defeated forever. But He also knew that to accomplish that, He would have to take on the humble form of a baby and ultimately be crucified and buried by His own creation. And here's the amazing part. He still came. He still came. God sitting in heaven saying, I'm going to intervene. Those people hate me. Those people reject me. Those people don't want to listen to me. They rebel against me. They do all kinds of evil things. I've given them every warning. I gave them my law. They rejected it and built other gods. They constantly pushed against me. The rest of the world is going to hell. Israel, my own people, don't want to do anything. I gave them covenants. I gave them kings. I gave them prophets. I gave them predictions. I gave them everything, and they don't care. At that point, God could say, forget it. But He says, no. I'm going to go down there. And I'm going to be one of them. 
And I'm going to fulfill my own law. And then I'm going to let them put me on a cross and kill me and bury me. Do we understand just how astounding that fact is? I mean, in the same way we got a fresh insight last week about the rejection at the inn and and Mary's uh, discomfort in that last week, I pray this morning that every single one of us will get a new understanding and appreciation of what Jesus endured for us. God could have chosen any method he wanted to enter the world, but he chose the one that most clearly displayed his love for us and his willingness to come forward humbly and sacrificially, even though he doesn't have any need to take that step so that we could be saved. Now, I don't care how long you've been saved. That has to be extra wonderful this morning. And maybe you're carrying a huge weight on you this morning, and maybe it's caused by residual sin, or there's some kind of difficult circumstance that's dulled your appreciation for Christmas. So now you don't, you don't really feel it this year. You don't, you don't see the birth of Christ as being awesome and the dramatic evidence of his love for you. You just want to kind of get through Christmas and hope winter's short and it doesn't snow a lot so you can get to spring and maybe it'll get better. And right now your heart's not steeled against sin and you feel emotionally and physically and spiritually beaten down and you've lost some of the joy of your salvation, listen, believer, this morning, look at that baby in the manger and realize what God's done for us. I say this as lovingly as I can. Get the focus off yourself. And get the focus on the Savior. Because He endured it for us. I cannot fathom why God would do that, but he did. And maybe you're here this morning and and you've never understood that or you've rejected or you've pushed against it for a year, but now your heart's open and you're, you're saying, I need to turn from my sin and I need to receive his gift. I pray today you would surrender your life to him. I don't know all of you. I don't know where you stand spiritually. Maybe you've come to church for 30 years. You've never received Christ. It is a free gift that God gives and your life can be permanently free from the bondage and curse of sin. You can be rescued from spiritual destruction and death and you can be delivered from evil and from judgment and you can be made whole and God can work in your life in powerful ways and you can be healed. Why did Jesus come? He came for you. He came to deliver you. And He guaranteed that that salvation is secure forever. Listen, I'm done. This can't just be another Christmas where we're stressed and we're surviving. Christmas is two weeks from today. Really? Another Christmas where we just kind of... I am so ready for it to be done. That kind of attitude. I got bills coming out, and just I'm, I'm overwhelmed. I'm busy. I don't have any more to give. I just I'm ready to take the tree down. This can't be another year like that. Unto us a child is born, a Savior, who is Christ 
the Lord. You'll find him. He's wrapped in cloths. He's lying in a manger. Aren't you glad God did that for us? Aren't you glad that he took this step to redeem us? Let's praise him. Father, we thank you this morning for your amazing, humble sacrifice on our behalf. Lord, we study your word this morning knowing these truths. We've heard these words so many times. And yet, Lord, maybe the repetition has kind of dulled our spiritual sensitivity. Lord, I pray this morning you would restore to every single one of us the joy of our salvation and that we would be amazed and overwhelmed by what you are going to do and what you have done in our lives in redeeming us and saving us. Lord, it is unimaginable to us that you would take this step and yet, Lord, it was predicted 700 years before and Jesus validated every prediction. He came as a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger, praised by strangers, so that he could live, fulfill the law, die, redeem us, purchase us, and make us your children forever. Lord, we praise you for that this morning. We honor you for what you have done. And Lord, if there's someone here that does not know you and has never heard that truth or never received that truth, I pray this morning you would break through to their heart. I pray they would finally understand and finally yield to you their lives so they can be redeemed and experience the joy of salvation. And Lord, for us, those of us that have been saved a very long time, we pray that our hearts would break open again with a fresh appreciation and gratitude for what you have done. Lord, we love you and we praise you for this work in our lives. And we honor you this morning as our Savior and our Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.